There was a time when someone would walk up to you and uh, give you their word, um, and that was as good as a signed contract. Um, you know, people would have, a person's word was their bond. It was actually almost better than a signed contract because the person was face to face and they did it visually. Um, in, in the Old Testament, they had this, and I actually was reading about it this week, where if they wanted to exchange a kind of a signed contract, they didn't have a signed contract, they would take their shoe off and they would hand their shoe to the other person. And that was like saying, this is, you know, this is kind of a signed contract kind of a deal. And so that was kind of the, the issue there in the Old Testament. And so different cultures had different ways about doing that. But a person's word was their promise. In our day and age, we have all kinds of warranties and promises that we want people to keep, don't we? Um, we, we pay big dollars to get warranties on computers, on cars, on whatever. We even demand our health care. We want guaranteed health care for everything. doesn't matter what we, how we get sick or how sick we are or whatever. If we stub our toe, we want health care to cover that. We want guaranteed health care. Websites, there's a couple of websites that actually follow and rate politicians on their effectiveness at keeping their promises. Did you know that? I mean, promises are a big thing in our world. And there's websites that actually track those kinds of things. Even government statistics will tell us, give you feedback on, on another promise that many, many people in our world make, and that's the promise in marriage and whether or not they keep their promise in marriage because many couples will stand face to face to one another and they'll say, to death do us part. But statistics tell us that that's not always the case. If you look at statistical, 40 to 50% of people in Canada, they estimate, will be divorced in their lifetime. One in two. 60% of second marriages are most likely to get divorced. And if you're into a third marriage, the rate goes up even higher at 75%. People sign prenuptial agreements and, and as, as a guarantee that somehow they, they will be protected in the marriage relationship, which is kind of weird because marriage is supposed to be one of uncommitted, unconditional love for one another and that... that it shouldn't even guarantee or shouldn't even need a prenuptial agreement in such a way. Yet in spite of all of that, couples still stand before each other and they say, I do, now and forever. Marriage relationships are tough. And I've shared with you before how Vange and I, even in our own marriage, um, have, have gotten to the point of coming close to divorce. But by God's grace, by His work in our life, He has kept us from that. You see, no one is immune from it. No one is from immune of that. Why? Because we are people who break our promises. And some of those promises hurt, when they're broken, hurt deeper than others. No wonder so many people are afraid to make promises. They're afraid to commit. They're afraid to say, I will do that or I will be there. Because our world is a, is a world where promises were broken. Or, and sometimes we're unsure about, well, I don't know what I will be doing or how this will work out. We have so many questions about what will happen. 
And therefore, we sometimes shy away from making promises because we're not sure that we can keep them. Or if we do make promises and we break them, we're going, well, I, it wasn't my fault. I was late for this or cars were a problem there or whatever. And we come, we, we're okay with breaking promises. But what about when God makes a promise? If our world is filled with people that break their promises, when we look at God, how do, how do we feel about it, that aspect? And I think most of us would say, if God is going to make a promise, whether you really know God personally or you don't know God personally, most people would probably say, 99.9% people would say, that if God makes a promise, more likely he's going to keep it. Like he will keep it. Or at least I expect him to keep it. But the question is, does he? Or does he follow along with us and break promises like we do? We've been looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. and We've been walking through verses, verses 10 through 14. And this is the last part of this series. And in verse 14, uh, Jeremiah records some, some, a statement that God makes to him that to pass on to the Jewish people. And he says this. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place which I carried you into exile. Four times God says, I will, I will, I will. In one verse, he says it four times. Now, two of those, he says, he says, I will bring you back. The second promise there. And the last, the fourth one there, he says, I will bring you back. One is from captivity and one is from exile. But four times he mentions here the same thing, that he will do what he says he does. So let's look at what he says. We looked at the first one last week a little bit, where he says, I will be found. God wants to be found by people. He wanted to be found by the Jewish people. And guess what? They did. They found him. God is authentic. When he says something, he, he, he's real. He wants to be known. He does, he's not one who changes his mind and, and to whatever is acceptable and whatever is kind of culturally relative. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. He's consistently loving. He's consistently there. He's consistently wanting to be found and encountered. That word um, there where he talks about being found has this aspect of being uncovered or discovered or being caught or being encountered. We talked about the Holy Spirit encounter. God wants to be encountered. It's not just he's up there somewhere in heaven or where he's played in hide and seek with us and, and he's kind of invisible and we can't see him. And so, well, you know, well, maybe he's there, maybe he's not there. I have to. God wants to be found. And he says, I will be found by us. It requires us to seek him. He's not going to just drop himself in our lap. He may, but more so often he says, if you seek me, you will find me. God says, I will be found. It's a promise. You seek me, you will find me. The second th promise he makes in that passage is, and he says it twice, I will bring you back. 
I will bring you back. The first time, he talks about, I will bring you back from captivity. Captivity is that aspect where there's, there's people are in bondage. They are in, they're, they're encapsulated by something. Um, they're in chains or whatever. And, and in this case, the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon. And so they were off in another, another place, and they were held captive there. They couldn't go home. They couldn't, there was lots of things they couldn't do. They were in captivity. And God says, I will bring you back from captivity. I will restore the relationship that you had with your people, with the rest of your people, and, and, and the relationship you have with the land, the nation of Israel, in that piece of property. I will bring you back and connect you to that. The second one he talks about, I will bring you back from exile. Now, exile in our day and age isn't necessarily the same way they had it there, but exile is being... Because most people didn't like to move around. Our world, people move around all the time. You know, everybody's from a different place. And that's okay. But in those days, exile was a place that often people were banished to. In other words, they were sent there almost like because they were bad. It's like God sent them to the corner. You know, and, okay, now it's your time out. Go sit in the corner till you're good, then you can come back. And that's the context that God says there. Where I banished you into exile, I will bring you back. In other words, you were dishonored. You were humbled. You were exposed. It has a negative connotation to it. And God says, from that place of dishonor, I will bring you back. Not only from captivity, but also from a place of dishonor. And you know what's amazing is God kept his promises to the, to the Jewish people. And he did that during the time of Nehemiah and the time of Ezra. And they stayed in the land of Israel for 500 years until God banished them again. Amazingly, and this is the most amazing part is, is that God still looks after the nation of Israel. He still, Israel still has a special place in God's life, in God's heart. And so for, for them being absent from the, nation, from the land of Israel for 1,900 years, even at the end, of, during the Second World War, when one nation tried to wipe them out, totally annihilate them. In 1948, the Jewish state was reinstituted, which is almost unheard of, but that's what happened. A Jewish nation was resettled. And, and, and on top of that, what's amazing through the whole thing is that against incredible odds, it survived. There was two wars that happened, one in 1967 and one in 1973, where the nations around Israel tried to, tried to take them out, tried to overrun them. And, and, and you know what? They had, those nations had, uh, they, could, they were out, outmanned and outgunned. And yet Israel survived. Why? Because of God's promise to them. Those nations should have crushed Israel. If you look at the history books and read through some of the stuff there, there's some crazy stories of how things just didn't work and how Israel survived. How Israel survived. God's promise stands for them as a nation, to bring them out of captivity, to bring them from out of exile, a place of disgrace and dishonor. The third, 
The third promise that he says here, the third, or the third I will, is that aspect he says, I will gather you. Now, we, we often don't think about that, about the context of that, but God makes this promise to the nation of Israel. He says, I will gather you back from all the places I've sent you. I will gather you back to be together, to reconnect you. And, and that's what happened. He brought them out of Babylon back to, to Israel. And in, and in 1948, he did the same thing. He gathered them from all the nations of the world back to one location. After the Second World War, in 1948, there were about 800,000 people living in the land of, of Israel. I'm not sure if those are all Jewish people or Palestinian Jewish people, but there was about 800,000, I think, Jews at that time living in Israel. Today, in 2019... There were 9 million. They grew by 10 times. Canada, let's go look at Canada as a comparison. We've had a lot of immigration into Canada. Canada, by comparison, was 13 million in 1948. Today, or in 2019, so we want to keep the same time frame, there was 37 million people in Canada, which has mean Canada grew three times in the same period that Israel grew 10. Not many people return back to their own nation. Once we're dispersed, we leave. I mean, my roots is not Canadian. I'm not Canadian roots. I was sure I was born here, but my, my grandparents weren't of Canadian root. They were German and Polish and so on. We have many of you here. Canada was not your roots. And yet most of us will live here in Canada and, and die here in Canada because we love Canada. But the Jewish people, for whatever reason oftentimes will leave the countries in which they have been and will return back to the nation of Israel and live there. And there's 9 million plus people that have, have claimed Israel as their, as their homeland. It's the only nation in the world where people are often going the opposite direction because most, most people leave every other country of the world. They don't want to live there anymore. They want to try to live somewhere else. But for whatever reason, the Jewish people, they have this desire to go back. And they're gathering. And God has been gathering them. And God says, to, God says to us that he wants to gather us together as well. How many times have you, have you heard people say, you know, I want, I, I just, I, I need some time away from people. I need to find out who I am. I need to discover my own identity. So, you know, we leave relationships, we strike out on our own from our families or whatever, or, you know, we walk away from the church, and we go, I need to find out who I am. But oftentimes we find out that in finding out who we are is not finding out ourselves separate from everybody else, but when actually when we gather together with everybody else, that's when we discover who we are. We discover our purpose we discover our identity. We discover our, how, how we fit into this world in which we live. What's interesting is most Canadians live in a place of connectedness. They live in a city. And yet, most people don't know their own neighbors. Which is kind of weird. You'd think everybody would know your neighbors if you lived in a city because you're beside everybody. But how many people of us, how many of us don't know all of our neighbors? My neighbors don't like to talk to me. I, I try and talk to them, but 
Oftentimes they're, you know, they just kind of run into their house or whatever. And, and, you know, maybe I'm scary. I don't know. But, you know, we, we live in this place in a city where we're living side by side with people and we don't know our neighbors. You go to the country where people are farther apart and everybody knows everybody. I was commenting to somebody here the other day that if, if you have, if somebody dies in the city and you have a funeral, you might get 100 people. If you have a funeral, somebody dies in a community, even a small community um, of a couple hundred people and somebody dies, you get three, four hundred people, five hundred people. It's weird how that, you'd think because the person was in a city and the people are closer together, there'd be more that would come to a funeral, but they don't. We live in a world of brokenness, of broken relationships, and oftentimes the broken, brokenness comes as a result of promises. That we, that we make or others break or whatever. And God says to us, he says, I want to gather you back together. I want to connect you. Our next series is going to be about that, about being connected in it, and, and, and why God wants us to gather, why we need each other, why we need this thing called the church. And what is the church? Why the church? Do we really need the church? Because it's just me and God, isn't it? Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's coming up in the next few weeks. So. But anyways, that's the whole part. But God says, I will gather you back. I will call you out. I want to connect you. Promises are one of those things that we're going, <sighs> do I keep them? Do I not keep them? So my question to you is, is, is we kind of close this service down is, how do you feel about the promises you make? How do you feel about the promises you make? Are you one who keeps their promise? Or do you shy away? Do you over-promise or do you under-promise and over-deliver? Like on your promise, you're going, well, you know, I, I should be able to be there by, by noon, but you're there by 11.45. Do you under-promise and over-deliver? Or do you flip it around the other way and you overpromise and underdeliver? Do you shy away and and from promises? Do you do you stall on keeping promises, or do you even break your promises? And you never deliver. You, or maybe you never even commit in the excuse me in the first place. You never promise, and as a result, you're going, oh man, I feel so alone. Well, sometimes it's because. We have the opportunity to commit, but we don't. Be careful and wise about the promises you, you make. Ask God to show you how the promises you can make, you can actually carry through. Sometimes they're hard. Like I said, Vange and I got to a place in our marriage relationship where divorce was an option. It, it floated around in our conversation, or at least in our minds it did for sure. And yet when we ask God, how can we make it work, God helped us figure out how to make it work, to keep our promises. We live in a world of offense. People are offended all the time. They're hurt. Everybody's hurt. How many of you have never, ever been hurt? Put up your hand. Okay, how many of you have ever, how many of you have other people that have broken promises to you? Put up your hand. Show me your hands. Sure, everybody. Everybody, everybody's been, been hurt some way by a promise. Someone reminded me last Sunday after, our, after the message, they said to me, you know, we live in a world of emotions. 
And emotions now becomes the standard by which we judge truth and reality. And therefore, if I'm offended, if I'm hurt, guess what? It's your fault that I'm hurt. And we judge people on that. Regardless of whether or not we understand why they did what they did, doesn't matter. If I'm hurt, I'm hurt. You have to apologize, regardless of whether it was justified or not. Maybe you didn't even know you hurt me. I'm still hurt. And our world is, is a world built on offense after offense and offense. And you want any organization, any, any community, any prov- provincial government to, to fail, become offended. And you will divide it like nobody's business. You will make it fail. Why do you think our government struggles so much on trying to, to, have a, to move forward in one direction? Because everybody's offended. Everybody's hurt. I have my rights. And we'd rather hang on to our rights than step up to our responsibilities. God calls us to forgive when people break their promises to us. He calls us to do that. God forgave Israel. That's why they ended in Babylon. They broke their promise to him. And yet God chose to forgive them and to restore the relationship. Are you able to extend the forgiveness as God has forgiven you? Are you able to do that? I'm going to make a promise to you right now. As surely as I stand here today, I'm going to break a promise to you. That's my promise. I'm going to offend you probably some one day. I'm going to say something badly. I'm going to make a joke that I think is really funny, and it'll come off sideways. Um, I, will, I, will, I will promise something and forget about it. I'll guarantee it that'll be happen one day. It may only happen once. But I'll guarantee just about everybody in this room, I will, I will offend you or hurt you or break a promise to you. That's a dumb promise to make, isn't it? And yet at the same time, that's reality. And as we engage in that, you see, the problem is everybody else around you also is going to make mistakes. They're also going to fail. Spouses, parents, friends, uh, family members, siblings, co-workers, they're all going to fail you sometime because you all put your hand up earlier and said, yes, people have broken their promises and it's going to happen again. But the question isn't not, the question is, well, I'm, you know, can I get them to f- make it right with me? The question is, what are you going to do with it when they do? Will you forgive them? Will you forgive them? Interesting thing about forgiveness, forgiveness does not equal trust. Forgiveness does not equal trust. And oftentimes we make, people make that mistake as they think forgiveness equals trust. It's not the same thing. We can forgive people and not trust them. But we do need to forgive them, whether they deserve it or not. Whether they ask for forgiveness or not. We need to forgive them, not for their sake, but for our sake. God didn't forgive Israel for Israel's sake. He gave it because he's a God who forgives for his, because his own character calls him to forgive. 
And so God calls us to step out in faith and to forgive. Even as God has forgiven us, even as God has forgiven Israel, God calls us to not only accept his forgiveness, but to forgive others or other people around them. We have to forgive and let it go. Not keep dragging it up. Because God does not drag up our sin when he forgives us. He separates us as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest ocean. And he puts up a fishing sign, as somebody said, or a sign that says, no fishing allowed. And he never goes back and calls it up. Even though we might remember our offense against God, God never, hold, God never rem reminds us of that. He says, I've forgiven you. What sin? Forgiveness is like a gather. So when God says, I will gather you back, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is like, is like gathering people back. It brings people back together. So when God says he will gather you back, what he's saying is, I will forgive you. I will, bring you. I will draw you back together. Forgiveness is being a peacemaker. You want to be a peacemaker? Then you have to forgive. You want peace in your relationships with your friends? Forgive without, asking, without them asking you. If you want marital harmony, forgive without them asking. Doesn't say you had to trust them sometimes, because sometimes spouses do really stupid things that you probably can't trust them again. But that doesn't mean we can't forgive them. Forgiveness is being a peacemaker, and it changes who we are, regardless of what happens out there. We still may not trust people, we still may not engage them in relationship, but at least here in our heart, we are at peace. And that's what we, that's what we want. But if we're bitter and angry and don't forgive people, there's going to be no peace here. Will you risk the commitment to be with others, to gather them together, to be in relationship with people, knowing that they will, will fail you? There's some tough questions when we look at this aspect of, of what it means for God to work in our lives. Do we trust Him? And when it comes to God, we know that He never, ever breaks a promise. Never, ever. There's no place where He made a promise that He did not keep. Oftentimes, He super excels at keeping His promises and gives us more than we deserve. More than He promised. But God said, from the very outset, He said, I will bring you back to Myself. I mean, way back in, at the outset, when Adam and Eve messed up in the garden, God set His mind not to wait for us to make things right, but He set about a whole series of events where He would make things right, even though He didn't need to. He didn't need to. Jesus took ownership of our sins. And when, he, when, when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus owned my sin. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And he wanted to extend forgiveness to us. He wanted to extend forgiveness to me. And he wanted to bring me back into a relationship with himself. He wanted to make things right. He took the onus, even though it wasn't his responsibility to do so. Because it was really our responsibility, because it was our sin. But he took the onus on that. God, and we saw earlier in this passage, God never promises to harm us, 
to hurt us or to break a promise that he, that he, that he wants to keep. God is there for us if, if we trust him. If we trust him. If we seek him. If we surrender to him. Will you trust God to keep his promises? Promise of forgiveness? You need to ask for forgiveness. Freedom from sin? Confess your sin to him. Freedom to have life, to have peace, to have love, to have joy, to have all the fruit of the spirit that God wants to give to us? Then you have to trust him. You have to surrender to him. Because God is a God of promises. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Even when we don't, he does. So when God says in Jeremiah 29, I will, he does. He does. He keeps those promises that he makes. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promise, for your word, for the revelation of truth that you come and bring to us. God, thank you that you care for us and that you are there for us. God, thank you that you are a God who sees and knows everything. And even in our world where people break promises left, right, and center, and where there's websites dedicated to broken promises, God, you don't break them. You keep them. You stand by us. You work in us. You call us to obedience. You call us to seek you because, God, you will be found. And you keep your promises. And you will bring us from captivity and exile and dishonor and disgrace back to you. And you will gather us together because in together there's a sense of community that we cannot experience in any other way except with other followers of you. And so, God, gather us back that we might seek you and know you. God, we are literally blown away sometimes by how good you are to us when we don't even deserve it. We've messed up so bad, and yet, God, you forgive. And in turn, you turn around and call us to forgive as well. To do as you you do for us. So lead us, God, now. As we worship you, and one final song, God lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.